You're listening to the Country Bible Church Sermon Cast. This sermon, titled R.E., was presented by Russ Cowenhoven on August 8th, 2017. One unique thing about me is that uh, even though I have lots of kids, my, my wife lets me ride motorcycle. And uh, I, I dreamed about I came in February, so that was kind of a little prohibitive as far as riding. But then I think in August, this is perfect. I can ride into Country Bible Church in Blair, Nebraska on a cycle. Nothing better than that, right? Well, I went on a, a long trip to Billings. We had denominational meetings out in Billings, Montana. And I rode my cycle out there. Put 750 miles in one day. That's the most I've ever done. Got back and realized my rear tire is shot. So uh, my wife would not let me ride here to Blair until I get a new tire. But uh, I dream of that. So one day, I'm going to ride into town here to Country Bible Church on my cycle. But uh, good to be with you. We have uh, lots of kids. I mentioned that last time. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about me. We're going to dive right into the Word because it is the inspired and errant authoritative, sufficient words of God that have the power, and that alone, the power to transform lives. And so we're going to spend time there. Uh, Just briefly, though, we have a lot of kids. uh, We have two teenage girls that we started working with, and we haven't officially adopted them, but they're kind of uh, fully part of our family. We have five officially adopted kids, uh, three from Ethiopia and two domestic adoptions. We've adopted seven years old, five years old, four years old, and twins that were seven months old. They're all now much older. Uh, I think we started adopting 22 years ago, something like that. And uh, we have five biological kids. So that makes, if you add that all up, that makes a dozen. And uh, I have one wife, and she's crazy, and she's still with me. Um, and she's awesome, but uh, they've, uh, we spent our last week at church camp last week. I rode home uh, with them to get them settled, did a couple things, turned around and rode here. So I think I was home for like 12 hours before I came back to, to Blair. So I'm using all that for excuse. So if I make no sense, it's, that's the problem, not me, right? No, no, uh, no. Um, no, we're going to try. I, I, I thank God for first services. It's kind of like your first church. You know, you experiment with them. You feel really bad for them, but you're grateful for the experience. So you guys are going to be much better here in second service. So open your Bibles with me. As Pastor Andrew has already uh, mentioned to Titus chapter 2, Caden, oh my goodness, you have grown like another foot and a half or something like that. Holy cow. And mom, Boy, uh, all we can say is blessings. Blessings on you, Andrew, as your son. My goodness, that's, uh, that's awesome stuff. Looking forward to meeting you. I don't think we've met, but uh, great to be here. Titus chapter 2, we are going to set a little context for this study, which I'm sure you mostly already have. So this may be more for my good than for yours. We're going to stand in honor of reading the sacred words of God, and then we're going to pray, because apart from his spirit of truth blessing us with understanding, we will not be changed. So context, Paul is writing to Titus, whom he has left on the island of Crete, And if you know a little bit of your geography there, Crete Crete is a fairly large, substantially important island in the middle of the Mediterranean. In fact, it's kind of a trade route. Of the whole then-known world, Crete is right at the center of it. So a lot happens in Crete. So there's a lot of paganism, a lot of worldliness. 
Paul leaves Titus in Crete for the specific purpose of raising up elders in every local church. Okay? Now, this is quite important to Paul because it's not his first missionary journey, nor his second, nor his third, but it is on his journey to Rome where Paul knows his time is short, that he leaves Titus in Crete and says, raise up elders who are committed to sound doctrine. Not only are they committed to sound doctrine, but they are willing to rebuke, rebuff, whatever it takes, anybody who teaches anything other than sound doctrine. Sound doctrine appears, sound faith, over and over again in this short letter. It is Paul's heart. But sound doctrine, sound truth, is not, the goal is not just more information, right? And so the second half of the letter, the litmus test for sound doctrine is good works. Good works that flow out of a transformed life. We're going to, co- life. We're going to come back to that. And Paul is saying there's a problem on the island of Crete. Sound doctrine must not be, uh, it's not being proclaimed because good works are not the result. Okay? And there's likely two primary influences, two primary causes for that. One is paganism. And that is the idea of kind of cheap grace, free grace, and just preaching the gospel and people praying the prayer but not really repenting and not really living any differently, claiming to be forgiven, claiming to go to heaven, but living like pagans, living like the world, living like hell. The other influence is that of legalism. So you go from license to legalism. And you have Judaizers, Jewish influence coming in and saying, hey, hey, the real problem is here you're not producing good works because you're not trying hard enough. You're not working hard enough. And what legalism does, because nobody can attain the standard of God apart from God's help, what legalism does is lower the standard to the level that some can attain it and you feel good about attaining it. And so the Judaizers are coming in and lowering the standard and preaching a gospel of good works. The result of either license or legalism is not transformation, which is the only thing that can produce the good works flowing from the life of Christ in an individual. Okay? So that's the context. And uh, we're picking it up in chapter 2 after Paul talks to the elders, after Paul talks to the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, and finally he ends with the bond slaves, the slaves. We pick it up in chapter 2, verse 11. Stand with me as we read verses 11 through 15. I should mention, I think they did convert it to the ESV. I apologize for that. I forgot that Country Bible Church and Pastor Andrew used the New Living Translation. I did all my study and prep in the ESV, and I'm not that good to switch translations now. So we're going with the ESV for this morning, and it's uh, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us 
to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. May the Lord add blessing, let us pray. Father God, add blessing to the reading of these inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient words. Father God, add understanding to these sacred words. For spiritual truth requires the spirit of truth to bring light and understanding. And so toward that end we pray, recognizing that transformation, life change is not in a man or in his message. It's in the eternal, timeless truths of the word of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I have to remind you as we begin, I, I, I hold a very clear uh, understanding of what my goal is as a preacher, um, and this was not true as true earlier on, um, but it's become abundantly clear. And it, to me, it, it begins with written word, it continues with the living word, and then it, uh, it uh, culminates with the incarnate word. And I think I mentioned this last time I was here. The goal is not information. The written word is a wonderful tool through which God has protected what he wants to communicate. And as we study the written words, and we're going to get to do that as staff, I, my passion is the word of God that is, that is the power to change. And uh, I'm going to do a little bit of staff development with, uh, with your staff and talking about applying proven principles to rightly dividing the word of God so that at the end of the day we hear the thus saith the Lord. And then we have a, an option at that point coming through the word of God, the written word of God. It brings us to an encounter with the living word of God. That's what it's all about. That through the written word, rightly dividing it, we would see Jesus. We would encounter, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, that we would encounter Jesus. And everything in the light of his glory makes sense. We have two, only two clear choices. Either continue on in independence as Lord of our own life or submit and surrender to him as Lord that he is. That's it. And so the goal of preaching is encounter with the living Lord that you would have the option to surrender all that you are to all that he is so that he could incarnately live the life through you that only he can live, right? Does that make sense? The only one who can live the Christian life is Christ himself. So Christ in us is our hope of glory. Christ living through us is our only hope of living a life that is pleasing to him. And so that's our goal as we come to the word of God. And we start with this phrase, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And now the context of Titus demands that we understand what salvation is and isn't. So I'm going to start there. I know I've used this. I'm pretty confident I have, but if I can't remember, you can't remember back to February. So I'll use it again because it helps us understand in a context when salvation is being greatly diminished, we are neglecting the great salvation that Jesus has purchased for us. We have to, not just here, I'm not just talking about you, but in our American context, we have undersold the gospel of great salvation. And so this analogy helps us kind of put it into the context of what Paul is talking about. And that is the cruise analogy. If we all went on a cruise together and Pastor Andrew got crazy and he fell off into the drink, as soon as his head bobbed above the water and he gained enough breath to scream out, what would he be yelling to us? It would be something like, save me. 
And the church today, when people are crying out for salvation, we offer them a spiritual life ring and say, hey, here you go, your sins are forgiven. And as wonderful and as necessary as that is, that's not salvation. As we throw the life ring to Pastor Andrew yelling, save me, he says, great, thank you that my sins are forgiven, but save me. And we throw another spiritual life ring and say, hey, don't worry about it, you're going to heaven. And he's grateful for that and says, wonderful, but not now. Save me. Right? And so sins forgiven, going to heaven, wonderful, absolutely vital, necessary, the means of salvation. And heaven, the result of salvation, because the eternal one abides in you. But salvation is being restored to live the life that God created us for. And that life is only possible through Christ. And so there's this really big news for, by the grace of God, Salvation has appeared for all people. And now, appeared is an important word. It's not like all of a sudden God came up with plan B and, oh, here you go. Appeared has to do with an unveiling. This is what I've been doing all along. The reality is that works salvation cannot restore anybody to the life I created you for. The reality is that simple forgiveness, is not simple, but forgiveness of sin cannot restore anybody to the life I created. There is needed something much greater, something more, and voila, veil pulled back, he's here. His name is Jesus. He can do what nothing else could do in restoring mankind to created purpose, right? And this is only by grace. So we're kind of defining terms here. I'm a proponent that grace has been greatly cheapened in our day. And we have to get it. Grace is not free. Never, ever, ever equate grace with free. The best way to remember grace is the, the Bible school definition. God's riches at Christ's expense. God offers us his undeserved, unearned favor so that we can go from children of wrath to children of God's son whom he loves from hell to heaven we can go from children of darkness to children of light but it's nowhere near free it's offered as a free gift but oh, it's expensive. It took God taking on flesh, living 100% as man, dying 100% as man, humbly submitted, even though God he was, as vulnerable, broken, dependent man. It took him descending into hell and rising victorious over sin and death it took him ascending to the right hand of the father it took him releasing the spirit of truth the spirit of Christ the Holy Spirit to live in us and with us for all of eternity grace is not free it's vastly expensive I take my kids to uh, McDonald's not because uh, I'm cheap but because I really like McDonald's I, it's awful it's evil stuff but I just really like McDonald's and take them there and I buy them the Happy Meal and they invest nothing in the $3.50 Happy Meal and they get a toy right 
and they take it home and most of the time the toy doesn't grip them, it doesn't, doesn't captivate them and so they hand it off to a, another sibling or hand it off to a neighborhood kid and there's absolutely no cost involved in it and so where do you find the toy? Uh, under the couch or in the bushes and eventually in the garbage can, right? And we have cheapened grace to be something that is free, costs nothing, and many people are trouncing upon it, and we have to get back for the grace, the favor of God has appeared in the name of Jesus, who paid the price, the deep, vast price to appease the wrath of God so that you and I could go from children of wrath to children of the holy God of the universe. And when he looks at us now, he says, my son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. That's awesome, right? And that's what Paul is talking about here. This is the kind of salvation that has appeared. Now, here's the goal, right? Paul, his goal is that sound doctrine would be preached and that as we uh, preach sound doctrine, people would come to a sound faith in the sufficiency of Christ. And in the sufficiency of Christ, we would not just be forgiven. We would not just get heaven to boot. We would be restored. That the sin would be gone. The presence of God would be restored so that living the life that he created us for is now possible. And the litmus test for that is that Christ is in you He's living his life in you and through you. There will be good works. Good works don't save you, but if you're saved, there will be good works. Right? Make sense? How can the life of holy God of the universe leave you unchanged? If it does, there's something wrong. We've got to go back to sound doctrine and sound faith. Okay? Hey, can you guys see the spit? It's like coming out all over the place, and I'm sorry about that. It's the light that's perfectly shining on the... The spit, but um, anyways, um, so for the grace of God has appeared, bring salvation to all people. And if we want to enter into this fully restored lives life, there are three things that we do. We must renounce things that are ungodly and worldly. We must resolve to find our purpose in His plan. We must refocus with patience on his return. And all of those things cannot, will not save us or allow us to live the saved life. But without those things, we will not live the saved life. Does that make sense? The last thing, we'll get to it, is that we need to rely on his purity and his passion in order to live the safe life. So we begin with the first. First of all, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Stop there. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Here I got a question for you to help drive home what I think Paul is driving towards and what I am seeking to elicit from you as far as response. Do you really believe that the things of the world are counterfeits? You see, if, we're, if you're going to live the saved life, the first step is renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, right? There's no living the saved life if 
Our passion is worldly and ungodly. And here's one of the biggest dupes that the church has on the church, or the enemy has on the church today. And that's believing that when we renounce worldly passions to turn towards what God had for us, we are renouncing what we really, 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 really want and need to get something that is lesser. It's more noble, but it's not as satisfying. Isn't that right? And here's the reality, Christian. Renouncing ungodliness, things that God did not attend, and worldly passions is not giving up less pleasure and purpose and all of that. It's giving up a counterfeit that can satisfy, but not fully like he can. And until we come to believe that, we will always be looking over our shoulder, renouncing, 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 and how long will it be before you, especially young people, say that's enough, because this is what I really need, right? For the past 10 years, I've worked strongly, intimately with men in addiction. Comes out of my own experience. I shared with that you last time, I, I've struggled over the years with lust. It's been kind of the, the temptation that the enemy knows where I'm vulnerable. And in the early years where I would sin, confess, sin, confess, and hated myself, sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess. I believe that 1 Corinthians 10, 13, while it might be for others, it's not for me. God is allowing me to be tempted beyond what I can handle. And the pleasure and the passion and the fulfillment that this gives me is just out of this world and greater than anything that God could give me. I hated that thought. But that's what I believed in my heart. And so no matter how hard I renounced and started walking this way, guess what? It was just a matter of time before the passions the pleasures of this world would draw me back. Right? Don't we see that? And in my own life and in the life of these other addicts, the step towards freedom was when we were able to renounce the worldly passions as counterfeits. Yeah, they're pleasurable. But God. Right? He said, how do you, how do you make that happen? Stop that doesn't last scripture makes it clear Psalm 34 taste and see that the Lord is good you see when you get a taste of him then the passion for him becomes greater than the counterfeits that the world offers now while this cannot save you without renouncing godlessness and worldly passions there's very little hope of living the restored life so the first step towards this great salvation, restored life, that Jesus appeared in a timely fashion for all people is to renounce counterfeit pleasures, worldly pleasures for what they are, counterfeits. Secondly, 
resolve to find peace, rest, rightness by pursuing his plan. Now, those words aren't exactly there, but read it again. Train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And here's the question for you to help elicit uh, appropriate, I think, response to the words of God. Do you really believe that created purpose is what will genuinely satisfy you? Now, it's a little bit different. It's really believing that those are counterfeits. That's important. But do you really believe that following God's way, which requires self-control, self-discipline, uprightness, living a life that is upright for all to see, you don't have to be embarrassed, you're not living in the shadows, there's nothing that you wouldn't want others to see about the lifestyle you are living, godly lives. Do you, do you really believe that if you choose self-control, ah, these are words that don't ring very loudly in our society, self-control, uprightness, and godless, godliness, that when you choose that, you will find ultimate satisfaction, ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose. So renouncing is one thing, but resolving, ah, that this is where it's at is another thing, right? And how many today don't really believe that? They really believe that, uh, that choosing God's way is somehow less satisfying. And so you have a whole lot of people that are just scratching out their existence. And here's the picture. I've got a pen here. I think it's, it, it belongs to Roy Rogers. And... Uh, and I got a pen here that is now missing its innards, its, uh, its inner life. And uh, this pen could renounce and say, I'm not going to choose the counterfeits of the world. Um, and I'm going to go this way and I'm just going to scratch out an existence because living God's way, although that way doesn't really satisfy, this way is not quite all it's cut out to be either, so I just got to scratch out this existence, right? In reality, without the inner life of God, this pen could do different things. It could scratch out a message you wanted to. It could become a doorstop. There's lots of different potential for this pen. But the reality is, is that this pen was created by a creator. And until this pen has its inner life restored and the purpose for which it's created for now becomes attainable, this life, this pen will just eke out an existence. But when the pen, the ink is restored and the pen is ready to be used the way that it was created to be used, it flows. And isn't that you and I? We renounce godlessness and worldly passions and we resort to saying, God, your way Creative purpose is the way. And it's in living out your created purpose that I'm going to find, even though it requires self-control discipline. Even though it, control, it includes a life that is lived in the light that all can see. Even though it includes pursuing godliness. All these things that the world seems to frown about. In pursuing those things, I'm pursuing creative purpose. 
and there is a flow and a life to that, right? And so that's the second thing. Again, can't save you, but apart from this, you will not find yourself living the saved life. Uh, and so we renounce counterfeit pleasures. We re- resolve to find peace, rest, rightness. There's, that's important to, to, to say a word about that. Isn't, isn't that right? We're, we're not just looking for adrenaline experiences. We're not just looking for emotional experiences. There is a rightness. The Hebrew word shalom means to be restored to rightness. And when we are restored to rightness, isn't there just a rest, a peace in that? It's not adrenaline. It's not emotion. It's not hype. Have you been there before? There's just a, this is right. And boy, out of that place of rightness, um, that's the place that uh, I think we find the stamina and strength to live. And so uh, renounce counterfeit pleasures, resolve to find peace, rightness by pursuing his plan. Lastly, refocus with patience on his return. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this third point, refocus with patience on his return. We are an immediate pleasure society. We want it all right now. Again, this can't save you, but apart from refocusing and being willing to wait for the glory that his appearing provides is essential if we're going to live out our saved life. I'm, uh, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. That makes me, should be a White Sox fan, but I'm a Cubs fan. And uh, I have a t-shirt that I, I might wear sometime this week that says, this is our year. And that's, of course, playing off of the 108 years where the Cubs would begin in first place and shortly thereafter would never see first place again. And somewhere, usually by mid-season, Cubs fans are saying what? There's always next year, right? My dad, my grandpa, my great-grandpa, all Cubs fans. My dad became an avid Cub fan. He was 76, 77 years old when the Cubs won last year. He became an avid Cub fan because that was the only games he could get to by himself as an 8, 9, 10-year-old boy. He lived on the south side of Chicago. The White Sox played at night. The Cubs didn't. They played during the day. He would take the L train through the city of Chicago as an 8, 9, 10-year-old boy and go to baseball games by himself. And he became an avid Cub fan. Guess what? I got it as well. And for 50 years of my life, there was always next year. And I've passed it on to my kids, and so people don't understand why we're Cubs fans in the middle of Minnesota, right? But we're Cubs fans and avid Cubs fans. I mean, I listened to the game yesterday, and I listened to a lot of games, more than you care to really need to know. I listened to lots of Cubs games, and last year, waiting all of these years for that last out in the bottom of the, no, top of, no, when anyway, bottom of the ninth inning, against the Cleveland Indians, and Chris Bryant makes an amazing play, throws it over to Anthony Rizzo, and the Cubs win the World Series. And I'm in my living room with all of my boys, and I jump up and go, yes! And then crumple, no kidding, crumple to the floor in a heap. I just fell. It was like 50 years of waiting at just all that. But I tell you, I wouldn't trade for anything. I gotta believe that waiting 
made that moment that much more glorious. And while this can't save you, renouncing worldly passions, resolving to find life in what God created us for, and then refocusing on the coming of our great and glorious Savior, Jesus. What a day, right? What a day that's going to be. Choosing to live for eternity rather than time. And then we come to the fourth point. Rely completely on his purity and passion. And here's where we wrap it up. But this is it. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where salvation is found. In verse 14, while we wait for our great Savior to reappear, we also need to fully affirm and recognize the sound doctrine that it is through him he gave himself for us to redeem us, to purchase us back from the slave market of lawless, sinful independence and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Stop there. Do you understand that? I, I know I said it last time that I was here. As a man thinketh, as a woman thinketh in his heart, so are they. And Christian, you, you will not make many strides into the saved life, into the life of good works that he created you for without apprehending this truth. You see, so many Christians who have claimed the name of Jesus and have been born again continue to strive for something that they can never get apart from simply saying, Jesus, thank you. You see, Jesus is so jealous for his own glory that he decided that I'm going to do whatever it takes to redeem a people, to purify a people, so that they will be fully mine. And so he came and he died and he paid the price. But having paid the price, he enters into the man or woman who believes and so completely purifies the temple that his full presence takes up residence and we become his possession. Isn't that awesome? It's so simple. Christian life is not rocket science. It's daily saying by faith, I believe, that Jesus, you're enough. Forgiven, restored. Jesus, your spirit in me. Here's my mind to think with. Here's my emotions to feel with. Here's my will to choose with. Here's my body. May it be your body. And collectively we come together, fit together as various parts to raise him up so that the world can see him for who he truly is. It's not rocket science, not complicated. But it does require a daily, utter dependence on his purifying grace and mercy. I can't but he already has, right? Oh, what an identity we have, church. We are his possession. That's awesome. 
And then he ends by saying, I captured this people. I restored this people. I purified this people as my own possession so that they would be zealous for good works. And there's a word picture that's going on there which bumps us back up to the end of the last section, which I hear hasn't been preached yet, but it's going to be preached in some fashion or form. But as he's talking to the bond slaves, the servants, the, the slaves, at the end he says that uh, you show good faith so that in everything, this is in verse 10, they may adorn the doctrine of God. This ties in with the zealous for good works. And adorning means to put on, to wear, right? And so Christ in us is our hope of glory, but then we begin to put on Christ on a daily fashion so that the world sees what he looks like. And so we're adorning, we're wearing the life of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, all of that. And the word adorn also means, which may be a more common uh, understanding in the life of that culture, it also means to trim a smoldering wick. That's, that's a picture that we don't make sense of much today, but they would make great sense of. Because candlelight was absolutely essential. And a wick would become eventually just a smoldering wick. Once there was life and fire, but now there's just a, a very low flicker, and the result is a lot of smoke, a lot of filth, a lot of dirt. And when that happened, whether it be in a home or in a temple, if you were the Jew, a Jew, you'd call in the adorner. And the adorner would come, and the first thing he'd do, he'd snuff out whatever life was there, right? Smoldering wick. Clean up the smoke and the ash. And then he would trim the wick. And then what? He'd breathe into a life, light, fire. He'd reignite it. And Christian, this is how we get to the saved life. This is it. Without renouncing, without resorting, without refocusing, it probably doesn't happen. But the saved life happens when we say, oh my, I'm just a smoldering wick. All I can produce is smoke and ash. And we cry out to the adorner who comes in and he snuffs out what was there. I've been crucified with Christ. He cleans up the ash and the smoke and the soot. He trims the wick and he breathes life and light so that we begin to burn with passion. That's what it means, zealous. To burn with passion from the inside out. And at that point, nobody has to tell you, go do good works. Because the adorner has given you life. Life that you were created for. And you and I, with his life in us, become zealous to find life not in counterfeits, but in the real deal. Amen? Let's stand together and pray. Father God, this is the point of preaching where uh, you know, I'd never really know where to go because uh, 
here's the reality, Lord. These are your inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient words. And you are all-knowing, all-present God of the universe. When we sit in submission to your word, your written word, it becomes an encounter with the living word, the adorner, Jesus Christ. And you are right now, because we have honored your word, you are right now meeting with each of your people in mind, in emotion, in will, body, soul, and spirit. You know what they need, where they need it, how they need it. And so, Lord, we just plead with you, continue that work. And each one, as we sing, may it be a response to your life, living in and through your word. May it be a response to the living Lord Jesus Christ right here before us and with us. We pray that the enemy would be bound, deception, trickery, lies, fleshy desires, worldly thinking, and that we would be freed up to see Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.